I then told the story yesterday. I told the story, which was a first-hand story, a great story. I told the story that when we were shortly after our bar mitzvah, me and my, I say we, me and my twin brother. <coughs> so the Panavishalot came to Milwaukee to raise money, and he was with us for Shabbos. So Friday night after the Suda, he sat down alone to drink a cup of tea, and me and my twin brother decided that it was an opportunity, so we stood next to him, and we said to him, Panuj Yerov, you are a disciple of the Chavetz Chaim, will you tell us a story about the Chavetz Chaim? So he, he was very very um, forthcoming. So he said, I went to raise money in a, in a small town, I think he said Pennsylvania. And he said, I was told that there was a very rich man there and that he was generous. So I went to see him, he said, and I started talking to him. <coughs> and I'm talking to him. I see that he's got to something, he's got a fire inside of him. And it was to me, it was, I was surprised because he, he had been in America for some 30 years or so. He was an immigrant. And I was surprised that you know, he's living in a kind of like in a, in a place that wasn't the center of Judaism. He was removed from the And nonetheless, he was able to somehow, he was able to keep this, this, this fire going. So I, he said, so I finally asked him, and I, I said, do you have some, you have a, a bottom cake, you have a warmth, where, where does this come from? So he says, so this, the Gavir told him that, he said to him, you were a Talmud of Chavetz He said, I was a Talmud of Chavetz He said, I was supposed to come to the yeshiva in Elo, beginning of the Zman. I, had, I came down with a terrible cold, I couldn't come, and I didn't come until after Sukkot, when the newsman started in Cheshvan. So he said, I arrived there with my father, my father brought me there, and as soon as we came to the Chavetz Chaim, Chavetz Chaim paled. He said, I forgot that, you know, I had accepted your son, and I, we gave out all the beds. I don't have, I don't have a bed for him. So he said, my father was horrified was and he uh, and the Chavitz Chaim immediately said no don't worry I'll take care of it you can go back home leave your son with me I'll take care of it so the Chavitz Chaim this this Chavitz Chaim took me into his room which was a very spartan room it didn't have very much in it and said no, okay until I find you a bed you'll sleep on the bench so he said, I went to sleep that night and I couldn't sleep. I was lonesome for home. I'd never been away from home and I was crying. He said, and Chavitz Chaim came in in the wee hours in the morning. Everybody knows he used to talk to himself. So he said, I acted like I was asleep because I didn't want him to know. So um, so he said, so I heard Chavitz Chaim say to himself, uh, maybe this, this bucher is chilled, maybe he's cold, I should cover him up. And he said, I heard him say to him, but I don't have a cover. So he said, so maybe I'll take off my gok. That's the, the, you know, the, this thing that's 
the, the upper jacket. I'll take off my rock. I'll cover him with my rock. So he said, then I'm afraid that I'll put it on and then he'll wake up. So finally he said, the Chavetz Chaim decided, now I'll cover him up. And he took off his rock and he covered him up with that rock. So this girl said, it's been 30 plus years since then. He says, but the rock is still warming me. So that was the story that the, that the Punam Shiro told us. And I repeated it since because I think that's really kind of like what parents need to do and teachers need to do and rabbis need to do. We need, we need to make sure that <clears throat> our children feel that we've covered them with our luck, that we're, you know, we're thinking about them, we're concerned about them, we're warming them. It's kind of, that's the thing that lasts. That's the thing that kids remember, and that's the thing that kids are very loath to, to give up. I think maybe I told the story also last year. Our Matanistan, my daughter-in-law's mother, is a survivor. They live in Brooklyn. Now she's an elderly widow, but she tells the story that there was a, uh, a family whose, whose daughter, uh, was off the derrick. They were very concerned that they, they managed to persuade the daughter to come to talk to the glove to the rabbits. Time. She was still Shema Shabbos, <clears throat> but she wanted to leave home. She didn't want to be home. She wanted to move with her friends in the village. For those of you who don't know what the village is, the village is not is a place in New York. The village is a place where where young people go when they're kind of experimenting with life, pushing them, pushing the envelope. Anyway, so the Martinez said this girl came and they tried to persuade her that she shouldn't leave home, that it was, she was putting herself at risk to no avail. So she said that finally the girl got up to leave and as the girl was leaving, she said to her, look, I know we probably haven't convinced you but I just want you to know, our door will always be open to you. So, 20 years go by. And one day, the Martinista goes down, she lives on the second floor, and she goes down to get the mail. So over there, it's like this, the door that opens to the street, then there's like a little vestibule, that's where the mailbox is. And then there's another door that leads up to the steps, and that door is usually locked. So she went down to get the mail, and as she's taking out the mail, the door opens, and a young woman pokes her head and says, Rebetzin, can I talk to you? She said, sure. So she said, do you mind if we talk upstairs in your apartment? 
She said, okay. And she followed her up the stairs into the apartment. And she comes to the apartment, and, and the, this young woman says to her, could we talk in your kitchen? She's beginning to wonder what this is all about. <laughs> so she said, okay. Comes into the kitchen, she said, okay, Robinson, if you don't mind, you sit in that chair over there, and I'm going <clears> to... <throat> By this time, she's like... You know. So she says to her, What's this all about? She said, you don't recognize me, she says, but I'm this girl that you spoke to 20 years ago. And you were sitting over here, your husband was standing against the refrigerator, and I was sitting in this chair. And you tried to convince me that I shouldn't leave home. And you saw that you weren't persuading me. But when I left, you said to me, I want you to know my door will always be open to you. He said, I moved into the village with my friends. My friends, some of them were Jewish, some of them were not, and most of them weren't, had no relationship at all to, to observance. He said, we would go out, and they would eat treif, and they expected me to eat along with them, and I thought to myself, if I eat treif, Will the Remington's door still be open to me? I didn't need Trev. She said, my friends went out on Shabbos and they wanted me to go along with them and it was it would have meant desecrating the Shabbos. So I was very tempted, but I said to myself, if I violate the Shabbos, will the Remington's door still be open to me? And I didn't desecrate the Shabbos. She said, eventually, she said, I got old, Dari, and I matured. I left the village, I came back, I married a, a, a Salman Shemotera, he said, I live now in, in Jersey, my kids go to day schools. I came back here today because I wanted to see if your door was still open to me. It's one of the, it's one of the, it's like, it's like the, like the look, you know, we, have, we have to make sure that that the people over whom we have some kind of influence or we're connected to that that they know that our door is always open to them. generation that's as lonely as I the fact that there is a door that's open means everything. <laughs>